Welcome to the LI Law Podcast. We feature legal issues and developments which affect Long Island residents and business owners. I am your host, Zahava Schechter. Our guest on the 60th episode is Abraham Kleinman Esquire, whose practice in Uniondale, New York, is concentrated in developing appropriate strategies for consumers who are overwhelmed by debt and are either being contacted by debt collection agencies or attorneys. Please check out the show notes for Abraham Kleinman's complete contact information and biography. And please keep in mind that we will not be providing legal advice to any specific questions. So let's get started. Abraham, please tell the listeners about yourself and your practice. Good afternoon. My name is Abraham Kleinman, and I have a practice that concentrates assisting consumers who find themselves with excessive debt and find themselves with communications from debt collectors or debt collection attorneys, and oftentimes even those who have been sued by debt collection attorneys. There are strategies for that as well. And how did you come to specialize in this area of consumer protection law? Well, my focus in this area, as we don't have specialization in the state of New York, my concentration is that I always like the underdog and I never like the bully. And just as you can effectively deal with a bully by using your brains and your skills and your knowledge, so to here, when it comes to debt collection agencies, you can easily turn the tables on the debt collector by using knowledge that you can gain or by using an attorney competent in this area. Okay. I I think it's fair to say that most people who would receive a payment demand letter or a telephone call would respond with fear, right? Especially if he or she cannot pay the debt. So what should the consumer's first step be when receiving any type of communication concerning a debt? The first thing they need to do is become educated in the area and really appreciate what it is that a debt collector is. Now, there are two types of debt collectors. There are debt collection attorneys and there are debt collection uh, agencies. So when you're dealing with debt collection agency, you, you can learn that they have no powers other than to report you to a credit reporting agency. So their powers are limited. They can telephone you. Nowadays, they can text you and they can write you. But if you address them, when you receive their very first communication, you can turn the tables on them. And what I mean by that is when they initially contact you in the first letter or the first communication, they have a presumption that the debt is valid. But if you were to contact them appropriately, hopefully in writing, and tell them that I dispute this debt, then that presumption no longer exists. And from that point forward, they must deem the debt as disputed. And until such time as that they verify the debt to you, they can't do anything to you. Even if in the rare instance, they would report it to a credit bureau, they would have to report it to the credit bureau that that particular line entry is disputed. 
Okay, I, I want to stop for one second because you sure. said such great stuff here. You said there's a presumption that the debt is valid. So that's interesting. What you're saying is when, when I receive a demand letter, the presumption, the burden is on me to disprove it rather than the debt collection agency to prove it. Did I understand correctly? Well, it's, it's slightly more nuanced than that. The presumption is not a presumption in court. It's only a presumption between the collection agency and yourself. And you never need prove anything. All you need to do is... So you're best positioned when you receive any communication from any type of debt collector is to send them a written dispute saying, I dispute the validity of the debt. And when you do that, you're now in the position of empowerment and they need to do what's called validation or verification of the debt. Now, when and you write to them, when you write to the debt collection agency, do you, should you send it certified? Should you send it with some kind of tracking? What do you recommend? I recommend you do it in a method where you can prove that they've received it. That could be by fax, it could be by certified mail, or any way where you can show that they've received it. And there are two types of disputes. One dispute is appropriate when you get a letter that you haven't paid, for example, a creditor who's a credit card. But there's a secondary industry within debt collection and that is considered debt buyers. So the credit card is given up and there's a secondary market for debt. Those debt buyers pay between one and three cents on the dollar for the debt. So they really are impassioned to get that money because their profit margin is in the high 90%. So when you receive a debt collection letter, and it says, we purchased this debt, then your dispute should be a little more precise. And in that instance, especially in the city of New York, you're empowered to ask them for the original documentation. By example, your credit card agreement. Another example would be, show me proof of the purchase. And oftentimes, they have difficult times in accessing those documents. And that could be, if you'll excuse the expression, your get out of jail card. So wait, how does someone buy a debt for one to three cents on the dollar? Because we have a six year statute of limitation. We have a seven year credit reporting period. So at around year five, many of the creditors say, I'll give up on this. I'll sell it, get what money I can, for three cents on the dollar and pawn it off to someone else. And those debt collectors are sometimes even more aggressive because they really have a profit incentive. Very interesting. And let me ask you, what about someone who dies, a, a debtor who is deceased? What are the steps which a family member or even a, an administrator of an estate can take concerning that uh, debt collection? Well, you used a key term there, and that was estate. Many consumers die without an estate intestate. And for those people, 
there is a third industry called death collection. And they try to write the family members and they use these impassioned pleas. And there was a very good article in the New York Times about this, how they try to become your friend and say, wouldn't the deceased have liked you to pay? And they hide the fact that likely you have no legal obligation. If there's an estate, well, that becomes part of the estate. But short of that, then they use their trickery. And their trickery is grounded in research. They know how to tug at your heartstrings. So I hear you say it's emotional, but let's talk legally. Does a family member have a responsibility for a deceased family member's debts, including surviving spouse? Does so anyone... So their surviving spouse would really be subject to whether they were on the agreement itself, whether they're an authorized user. But the second level of analysis there is whether this is subject to the estate. If it's subject to the estate, then they're just another lien holder like everyone else. Unsecured and, and as well, right? It is unsecured until and if they receive a judgment okay. if they get sued. Interesting. What are some tips you have for debtors who are harassed by creditors? We hear about this all the time. They either get threatening phone calls, constant phone calls, or nasty letters. What should they do to stop the harassment? So we, ha we have to refine the question. Are we speaking about harassment by creditors or harassment by third-party debt collectors? Is there a difference? There is a major difference. The Fair Debt Collection Practices Act governs the behaviors of third parties, that being debt collectors, debt purchasers, and debt collection attorneys. The Fair Debt Collection Practices Act in the main does not govern the creditor, but in my experience, creditors are generally not harassing. They are governed by certain of their corporate guidelines. It's the debt collector who's highly incentivized uh, to collect the money who can sometimes go out of those bounds. Okay, and, and let me ask you about privacy because I think this is a big issue. To what extent is a debtor's affairs, are a debtor's affairs private and not able to be disclosed to someone working with the creditor? Is there any privacy here? Well, I think most of your privacy rights um, at, with respect to debt collectors and debt collection agencies uh, go by the wayside because it's in your original agreement that they may contact the debtor and debtor's attorney and, and persons like that. that so that's what's in the small print when you sign it and you don't read it, right? That's only part of the small print, but the other good part of the small print is you've likely agreed to an arbitration clause. Mm. So if you receive a collection letter from a debt collection attorney and it gets ratcheted up to a lawsuit, you may have a real good answer for that lawsuit that there isn't appropriate jurisdiction here because when we sign that credit card agreement on paragraph 37, we've agreed not to sue each other. You know what I think is interesting, Abraham? Most people do not want to go to arbitration. They feel that they have a better shot, I think, 
in the court system rather than in the arbitration system. But it sounds like from what you're saying, arbitration is better for a debtor. Well, in all my years of experience, I can only think of one instance where the creditor through its debt collector or directly has actually gone to arbitration. That's not a methodology that the debt collection attorneys often use. Is that because most of these debts settle? They negotiate and, and slice the, the debt in half, basically? No, because when a consumer receives a lawsuit, they get frustrated, they get upset, and they throw the papers to the side. So you, they made it real easy for the debt collection attorney to get a default judgment. Mm -hmm. And then I get that phone call, the dreaded phone call, that I went to my ATM and I have a negative balance. And that's because the debtor never responded to the papers. The court issued what's called this default judgment. But let me ask you, Abraham, how easy or hard is it to vacate, meaning to remove that default judgment? It's you have to prove that you weren't served and that you didn't owe the debt. Hard. And that's a hard bar. That's a high bar, high a bar. high burden. And all of this comes from not responding to the initial communication. If you can just do that, if I can impress listeners to just do that, they can forestall or end these negative consequences. Okay, you that's the moral. The that's the moral of the story. When you get one of these letters or phone calls and you're scared, don't walk away from it. Call a lawyer who can help you like Abraham to help you to, to fight this. So let's talk about New York State and federal consumer protection laws. Are one better than the other? Do they actually help the consumer or are they more favorable to the company? And how would a consumer know which rights he or she has in this area? The consumer shouldn't know and need not know. Like any other professional, there are plenty of attorneys who have focused on this area and who can give them decades of knowledge and an appropriate way in which to conduct yourself. So if, if you need a dentist, go to the dentist. Don't use the uh, at-home dental kit. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And do you find that New York state laws are more favorable, less favorable than federal protections? How do they compare to each other? They're, they're somewhat analogous and they, and they track each other, but it doesn't need to rise to that level. All you need to do is to invoke your rights and then you'll be in the driver's seat. Okay, so that's a great segue, Abraham, to our feature called What is on Your Desk? A recent matter you handled for a client. So what, what is on your desk? On my desk now are debt creditors who are unwilling to give the money to the debt collection agency for them to do the collection work. So rather than use or engage a third-party debt collector or attorney, they're using their own in-house lawyers. But they neglect to inform the consumer 
that that lawyer is in-house. So you, as a consumer, when you receive a lawyer's letter in the mail from certain of these creditors, you're thinking this has been ratcheted up now. They brought it up a level and hired a third party attorney when in fact they've done nothing of the sort. They just gave it to their in-house counsel. Which is cheaper for them probably and maybe gets better results because consumers don't know the difference. Is that the point? It's exactly the point and they get to control it more and they're more aggressive because it's their own money. Right. They keep the money. They don't have to pay a percentage out. By the way, when a credit card agency gets one of these debts, do you know, is there like an across the board percentage that the agency gets if they're able to reclaim any money or receive money? I don't think it's across the board. I think it's based on the, the balance and the type of debt. And most importantly, the age of the debt. Meaning the older it is, the less you get? The the less, the older it is, they may get a larger percentage because the likelihood of collection is lesser on the later stages. So you're gambling, gambling, But that leads us into the issue of payment. You may be making a payment towards the end of the statute of limitations, and that will re-up credit reporting for another seven years. So you have to be very careful who you pay, how you pay, and if you pay. By example, there is a whole settlement industry in the United States, and they may give you a 50 percentile discount. And you'll be very happy to have paid your debt at a 50 percent discount, only to learn later that you have to pay taxes on that discount. So that 50% discount is really not a 50% discount. You're talking about form 1099D, right? 1099C. C? C, I believe. Okay. All right. Very good. And um, do you see, we've talked a bit about New York City and New York State. Are there any developments specific to Long Island, which you see of which listeners should be aware? Well, there's some recent developments and the case law has not settled yet. But many collection agencies, if not most, are not positioned to send out hundreds, if not thousands of letters. And they use mailing services. And earlier in the podcast, you mentioned the issue of privacy. And when the collection agency sends your information to a third party mailing house, they may in fact be violating your privacy rights. The case law is still open on that, but the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act has a very limited number of people who may receive your information and in fact know that you have defaulted on your consumer debt. And a mailing company is not on the list of persons or entities who may have your information. So you have to analyze every part of the collection letter, the envelope, the letter itself, and all the information contained in the letter, whether it be barcode, QR codes, or response dates. Abraham, anything else you would like to tell our listeners? I just want to impress upon the listeners 
that there's a short window, arguably 30 to 35 days from when you receive your first collection letter. And that's the time that you need to invoke your rights. So at that juncture, you are best positioned to write to the collection agency. And if you need any help with that, I'm here for you. I'm happy to speak with you and direct you in the best way I can. Thank you, Abraham. And that's it for our 60th episode. Um, to our listeners, please contact Abraham with any of your specific consumer protection questions or concerns. His information is in the show notes. The LI Law Podcast keeps you updated on Long Island legal developments and is your podcast for local legal tips, which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.